When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. So today we are speaking with Jed Esty about the rhetoric of decline. Jed, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm a uh, professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, and I study more or less British and now American culture over the last 150 years or so. I wrote one book about what the culture of decline and perhaps the rhetoric of decline looked like in Britain in the 20th century. And more recently, I've been thinking about how to carry that research forward into the kind of present and recent past of American literature and culture and to kind of do a paired history that tries to draw lessons from the experience of Britain as a country, a society, and a culture, and what that might mean for American cultural expression and political life today. What the heck is the rhetoric of decline? Well, the rhetoric of decline is almost like what Moliere said about prose or what the fish discovers about the water of the fishbowl. It's the thing we live in. It's the medium of our, of our expression, of our reflection, of our attempt to understand and locate ourselves within history. And I think for your generation and mine, Kim, it's been a pervasive kind of medium or current that we swim in. I think that's been true ever since the 70s. And what motivated me to write a book about it, a very short book about a very big subject, is an interest in kind of breaking out of literary and cultural studies as a academic humanities zone and trying to enter the mainstream media space where the rhetoric of decline obtains and pertains. I would just quickly sketch three, three features of it. One is the central paradox or contradiction, which I talk about in the book, is that most Americans are treated to a bizarre concoction of optimism and alarmism told at once that America will always be the greatest country in the world, always has been. And at the same time that we're in some kind of urgent emergency that requires not climate emergency, but a national emergency that requires alarm and a kind of austere competitive relationship to the rising powers of the rest of the world. And that central contradiction defines what I call the rhetoric of decline or, or what I would call just declineism. And that's important because declineism isn't 
America is getting worse. It's the double dose contradictory message that America is always great and getting worse. That's the rhetoric of decline. And the two other associated paradoxes that make it the rhetoric of decline, one is the surprising fact that it's not just conservatives in the world after Trump who think about making America great again. I think a lot of people who define themselves as liberals or who occupy the political center have a similar streak of nostalgia without realizing how toxically it feeds the conservative backlash of American politics now. <laughs> and the final one that I would just mention at the outset is my book, The Future of Decline, that we're talking about today. It's a strange book because one core argument is deep, irrational beliefs and identity structures are much more important to politics than facts and statistics. That's no surprise. But the surprising part is I also believe with Stuart Hall, who's one of the presiding figures in the book, that culture can be changed, that people's ideas and beliefs are susceptible to persuasion and influence and change, and that good ideas can be used to knock out bad ideas. Okay. And so in this case, the bad idea is this weird combination of American perennial extravagant greatness and the dramatic narratives of decline. Exactly. And at one level, it's just so obviously contradictory. I mean, it's not always the same people who believe those two things. Mm. There's a we're falling off a cliff catastrophe camp, and there's a we're always going to be great, blithe optimists camp. Okay. But the sum total of the rhetoric or the discourse is one that leaves Americans, I think, very confused and manipulated in a kind of ping pong narrative between retrenching around lifestyles and beliefs about American greatness that sort of don't shake us into real change with regard to climate or anything else, and a kind of scarcity austerity framework that makes everyone constantly worried about the economy, about the future, about China, about everything. So it's clear that the disaster we are facing in this rhetoric is not necessarily that of climate change. Yeah. They look kind of similar. So what- They do, (laughs) and they therefore have a kind of interestingly rhetorically and politically fungible relationship to each other. And different actors and different speakers at different times can sort of play a shell game uh, with these two horizons of disaster. I think the most important of those shell games is the way that most contemporary politics, and that includes speakers like Joe Biden and Barack Obama, (laughs) tend to get voters focused on the horizon of American loss, of lost greatness, more than on the horizon of planetary climate emergency and climate disaster. <laughs> and that continues to hit home with most voters, you know, mythologically much more than climate change does. It's a reality that Americans are trained to be able to hear <laughs> because we have this great and grand and sort of morose tradition in American culture going back to the Puritans, of believing that our culture has great promise, but is constantly falling short of that promise. And somehow that story keeps getting told in various ways and not mapped on to climate. Hmm. So, I mean, one of the interventions I want to make by writing a short book that aspires to, you know, crack the media frame and get out of a purely academic discourse about theory and culture is to try to talk about how we're now in a position because of climate change to do two things we haven't really done before. One is to stop talking about lost greatness as the central story of America and really incorporate into that story what it took to achieve greatness and supremacy, what it took in the way of racial violence, what it took in the way of environmental violence, what the costs of greatness really are rather than just can we hold on to it forever. 
And thinking of those two things in the same frame, I think would, you know, bring about a real modernization of American politics or its its mythic rhetoric, at least. And the other is a kind of perverse thesis embedded in the book is that Frederick Jackson Turner's closing of the American frontier thesis arrived 133 years too early. And that it's really climate change that closes the American frontier, not the settlement of the West or the pacification of indigenous populations or any of the other things that Turner pointed to in the 1890s. It's really, for me, the triple moment of Sinophobia, fear of China, of anti-immigrant waves being tapped into in mainstream American politics in the era of Trump, and climate change that represent the closing of the American frontier. China, the wall, and the climate wall are the three signifiers for me of the frontier finally being closed. America finally has to rewire its culture and its politics for a time when endless expansion is no longer the future. How do I use the rhetoric of decline? Well. It is in one way a kind of grandiose arc of argument that I've already sketched out for you. In another way, it's a rather modest suggestion to begin where so much academic theoretical discourse begins, and that's with critique. Mm -hmm. In this case, what we would call inside our specializations, inside theoretical discourse, we would call it imminent critique. That is, let's begin to understand the contradictions of the language that we have inherited. To focus on the rhetoric of decline is to focus on declinism's utility, not just to conservative populist movements, not just to white lash, for example, but its utility to the mainstream in keeping the horizon line of American politics short and familiar. Mm -hmm. But the other way to use it is to think about de-exceptionalizing America. And you know that's an academic mode of critique in which certain kinds of sophisticated thinking is brought to bear on the mythological idea that America is an unprecedented event in world history. Mm -hmm. But now that the whole world can see that America is struggling with its power and its future power vis-a-vis not just China, but all kinds of other rising powers in the world, including India, which is now the biggest country in the world. Mm. China is now the biggest economy in the world by some measures. And if it isn't today, it will be in 10 years. Now that real history Mm -hmm. has come along to make the project of de-exceptionalizing America and American studies, for that matter, materially real and actual in our lifetimes, the project of de-exceptionalizing becomes much less of an avant-garde theoretical gambit and much more of an everyday, ordinary cultural practice. (laughs) The rhetoric of decline, what I call declinism, is used for bad purposes and is incoherent and contradictory (laughs) and is essentially the West's incapacity to understand its own narrative. The critique of the rhetoric of decline, which has been a largely academic project, I believe is now ready for prime time okay, or ready for the mainstream. And what we would have once called anti-exceptionalism in American studies in the North American Academy or the project of decolonizing the English department mm-hmm. is now no longer a pet academic project designed to kind of improve the ideological framework of the history of culture and literature. is now, I think, available to all of us because of where we have landed as a way of rethinking what it means to be an American. Let me ask you our final question. How will the rhetoric of decline save the world? You know, it's so easy to believe one of the two false poles of the double-barreled rhetoric of decline that I attempted quickly to diagnose for you, which is either that 
it's already too late to save America. We're a broken culture and a broken society. And many of my friends who are largely in academia and on the left kind of feel that way or to believe the opposite, which is America is great and always has been and we should celebrate it rather than denigrate it. And most people with whom I have contact who vote on the right or even vote on the center mm -hmm. are attracted to that idea. And we have to figure out a way to break that knotted, tangled contradiction. That, of course, is a highfalutin cultural mission, but I think I have two historical things to say about saving the world that are a little more concrete and tangible. And one comes directly from Stuart Hall and the other leading figures in 1970s British cultural studies, which I talk about a lot because I consider them, as I say in my book, first responders to the problem of being an ex-superpower. And that's a reframing of the rise of cultural studies itself. And one thing it turns on is the idea that Stuart Hall and many others explored in a very granular scholarly way, which was that the British middle and working classes didn't automatically believe in the project of Britain's global supremacy. It wasn't what motivated them politically or in their everyday lives, but they were trained to believe, they were recruited into believing in the mission of British supremacy, mostly in the 1880s, 1890s, and the first decade or two of the 20th century, which is both the peak of Britain's empire and the final phase of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that was true for Americans over the last 50 years or so, 70 years or so. Americans were trained to believe in American supremacy. That that's partly a story about white or racial supremacy. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a story about military and economic supremacy and hegemony over the rest of the world. And if, as Stuart Hall said about the British voting population, they could be made to believe one thing, they can be made to believe another. If Americans in parallel to that line of argumentation, we're trained to believe in American supremacy as our national purpose, as opposed to say democracy or inclusivity or even prosperity. Hmm. If that was a training process, and I believe it was, it is therefore susceptible to a counter training process, a way of rewiring the essence of our culture to say that our shared mission, our collective destiny is not to be the greatest at everything. It's to be a good and functional society, not the lone superpower of the world. So that's, that's one thing. And the other is that I do believe that culture it plays an enormous role in everyone's political beliefs and that political and policy intellectuals misunderstand the function of rational argumentation in the work that they do and in the attempt to reach voters, but that cultural narratives along with religious ones, enormously shape identity and belief and therefore shape our politics and therefore shape our future. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most under-recognized shaping forces is how much 19th century liberalism and the belief that individuals are the proper unit of social analysis and of cultural myth and of political action are the center of the story. And I think there's a long history of what we now call toxic individualism in America. <laughs> and I think part of that story is an immense power that American mainstream storytelling, by which I mean movies, TV, comic books, literature itself, um, absorbed from 19th century Britain in particular, but 19th century Europe in general, a kind of anti-state heroic conception of individual action. So when the police fail, Sherlock Holmes solves the problems. Or when the police fail, Superman solves the problems. Or when the state fails, Donald Trump will solve your problems. 
this idea of like strong authoritarian masculinist individuals as problem solvers is immensely influential in keeping alive a patriarchal and authoritarian concept of political change in America. Mm -hmm. And it leads to everyday capillary network level toxic individualism as the kind of secret second language of the rhetoric of decline. And so the saving the world mission that's underlying the work we've been talking about is to try to interrupt the circuits of toxic individualism by at least beginning to understand, if not to break up our romantic vestigial attachment to the, the kind of frontier mythology of the weak state heroic narrative. I mean, it's funny because saving the world is the function of that narrative in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We need to believe that the state can save the world and not that Superman saves the world. Totally. I wrote the book with the idea that I wanted to try to convince most of my friends, colleagues, students who I consider to be deeply politically motivated and deeply anti-state or anti-America to try to gravitate towards the idea that the goal shouldn't be under current conditions to dispense with America or the state because of its toxic history, but to reclaim it and to convince my friends, relatives, colleagues, and others, most of whom are my age or older, who continue to, to speak this unconscious language of lost greatness. Mm -hmm. You know, the Biden, Hillary Clinton, Obama voters who are attached to the idea that we have to keep restating that America is the greatest country ever to stop saying that. So I'm trying to effectively break up a rhetorical logjam between an anti-state left and a pro-greatness center mm -hmm. to produce not a new set of agents inside the cultural media educational system, but a new orientation to thinking about American decline as the opportunity to reclaim a narrative in which democracy, not supremacy, is the guiding idea of American futures. Yeah. Well, I think that might be a really good note to end on. Great. So thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonik Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonik Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.